My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Rebecca F. Huang. Rebecca is a multi-award winning, best-selling author. She's also an accomplished scholar and academic. She's a Marshall Scholar. She has a Master's in Philosophy of Chinese Studies from Cambridge and a Master's of Science in Contemporary Chinese Studies from Oxford. And she's currently pursuing a PhD in East Asian Languages and Literatures at Yale. Between 2018 and 2020, she released her three-book trilogy, The Poppy War, which is a beautiful, brutal, epic fantasy that combines the history of 20th century China with this universe of monsters and magic and gods. It is a heartbreaking and powerful trilogy, and I highly recommend it to anyone who is the least bit interested in things like Game of Thrones and stuff like that, which um, have become pretty popular in our culture. I think that actually the Poppy War trilogy is has been optioned by Netflix and might even be uh, in production right now. Um, so you might get a chance to see it as well as read it, but I recommend reading it before it gets to the screen. Do yourself that favor. Rebecca's also the author of uh, her latest book, Babel, An Arcane History, which uh, is a number one New York Times bestselling book. And gosh, what to say about this book? It is incredibly intricate. Uh, I think it's it's safe to say the book is a masterpiece. It explores a kind of alternative history of academia centered in Oxford in a sort of magical version of, of London, where literary translation, the act of translation from one language to another is a sort of magic. The book's central character, Robin Swift, is uh, orphaned by cholera in Canton, and he's brought from China to London by this mysterious professor. And and for anyone who sort of loves these, these sort of historical fantasy pieces, it starts off in much the way we might think if we're thinking of, um, you know, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials or, uh, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. There's something very fairy tale esque at first. But as, as we come to discover this, this place, the Royal Institution of Translation, also known as Babel at Oxford University, is um, a place where translation and silverworking, which is the art of manifesting the meaning lost in translation through these silver bars, which produces magic. This is the sort of center of this magic. It, we start to discover and, and really see this unflinching look at the, the oppressive colonial racist ideology that allowed for this institution to come into being. And it really, this book 
is, as I think the best science fiction and fantasy does so well, makes us look long and hard at, um, at our own world. But it does so without sacrificing the story, which is just filled with moments of sweetness and love and tenderness and also moments of violence and loss and brutality. And Robin ultimately has to make a choice about revolution, about changing an institution, and he has to decide what he's willing to sacrifice to bring Babel down. So that's the setting, the stage from which our conversation jumps off. And we use these questions to explore what it is to translate, what it is to speak, what it is to have an identity and and a sense of self and a sense of place and home and what it is to lose that. All of these really rich questions. And Rebecca, ever the scholar, takes us into that uh, in a beautiful way. So this was a really special conversation for me. And... uh, can't wait for you to hear it. So let's get settled in. <sighs> and hear what Rebecca has for us. Okay. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hi, Andy. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really uh, appreciative that you're here, especially uh, after learning that in just a, a little while you'll be navigating the chaos to prepare for. Uh, a trip overseas. So thanks for holding the morning out for this space. I really appreciate it. Yes, I can't wait. And it's no trouble at all. Mm, mm. So uh, I want to say congratulations for your latest novel, which I think is still at the time of this recording in pre-order. We're in July and I think it's coming out in August of 2022. Is that right? Yes, it comes out August 23rd in the US and Ah. September 1st in the UK. Wow. Okay. Can I just share a fun, exciting thing? August 23rd is my birthday. So thank you for for that birthday gift. (laughs) (laughs) Happy early birthday. Thanks. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, I have had the good fortune to spend a little bit of time with the novel Babel. And uh, I also had the chance to read the first in your trilogy, uh, a book called The Poppy War. And um, I'm excited because I, based on my experience of of the writing so far, there's a lot we could talk about. And um, I'm really excited to explore some themes that you work with in your writing. I can't wait to get Mm. into it. Mm. So let me just feel into where I want to start. There's like, I'm sort of noticing pulled in a few directions. I definitely at some point um, want to invite you to read from the book. We could either, we could do one of two things. I could sort of Take us in with some questions, or if you wanted to, we could actually start with an excerpt from the book and use that as a jumping off point. Do you have a, do you have a strong leaning in one direction on the, or the other? Mm, well, I've got an excerpt that I really like, and I think it might serve to introduce the themes of the book. Um, <sighs> Let's do that. And Babel is a historical fantasy with a magic system based on what is lost in translation between one language and another. So the whole text is really about etymology and translation theory and the history of languages and the use of language and translation as tools of power. Um, So I think this little back and forth between two characters in the middle of the book might serve to introduce the things I'm thinking about. Mm, Brilliant. Let's start there whenever you're ready. 
Um, so for quick context, the main character's name is Robin, and he's talking to a very snobbish Oxford student named Pendennis. Got it. So Robin leaned back and drained the rest of his Madeira. Several seconds passed before he realized that the poem had ended and his appraisal was required. We have translators working on poetry at Babel, he said blandly, for lack of anything better to say. Of course, that's not the same, Pendennis said. Translating poetry is for those who haven't the creative fire themselves. They can only seek residual fame, cribbing off the worth of others. Robin scoffed. I don't think that's true. You wouldn't know, said Pendennis. You're not a poet. Actually, Robin fidgeted with the stomach of his glass for a moment, then decided to keep talking. I think translation can be much harder than original composition in many ways. The poet is free to say whatever he likes, you see. He can choose from any number of linguistic tricks in the language he's composing in. Word choice, word order, sound, they all matter. And without any one of them, the whole thing falls apart. That's why Shelley writes that translating poetry is about as wise as casting a violet into a crucible. <laughs> so there are footnotes in the text. So there's a footnote here. Um, Robin, despite his general dislike of Shelley, had still read his thoughts on translation, which he grudgingly respected. Hence the vanity of translation. It were as wise to cast a violet into a crucible that you might discover the formal principle of its color and odor as seek to transfuse from one language into another the creations of a poet. The plant must spring again from its seed or it will bear no flower. And this is the burden of the curse of Babel." End footnote. So the translator needs to be translator, literary critic, and poet all at once. He must read the original well enough to understand all the machinery at play to convey its meaning with as much accuracy as possible. Then rearrange the translated meaning into an aesthetically pleasing structure in the target language that, by his judgment, matches the original. The poet runs untrammeled across the meadow. The translator dances in shackles. By the end of this spiel, Pendennis and his friends were staring at him, slack-jawed amused, as if they weren't sure what to make of him. Dancing in shackles, Wilcom said after a pause. That's lovely. But I'm not a poet, Robin said, a bit more viciously than he'd intended. So really, what do I know? And exit. Mm. Mm. Can you read that line, that last, the, the, the poet runs on trammeled across the meadow, the translator dances in shackles. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's right. I didn't come mm. up with it. It's a very famous metaphor, but mm. I think it works in this passage. Mm. Mm. What was happening for the for the other characters sort of staring slackjawed at Robin? Um, they were they were surprised or impacted in some way about about Robin's perspective on translation. Well, mostly what's going on in the social dynamics in this scene is that the other characters don't think very highly of Robin. There's mm. a racial imbalance here as well. Part of the speculative part of Oxford is that they're students of color in this version of 1830s Oxford and there mm. weren't really back then there are very very few exceptions um so he's already talking to a room of people who don't think he has a right to be there and who don't think he has anything much to offer except the ability to speak Chinese and he's just argued that what they know about poetry and translation um you know might might not be as much as what he knows hmm hmm Mm. 
So what was important to you about anchoring a story in translation? If, if I understand correctly, translation is actually the, the foundation for the book's magic system, that it's by translating other languages that people in power can, can produce magic and that has a really extractive quality to it. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I've been translating for years, um, for many years, unofficially, because I'm bilingual and my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was five. So I've always been juggling in between English and Chinese. And then right around, um, right before I started drafting Babel, I started translating short stories professionally. And then that made me think much harder about the creative difficulty of it. And what always struck me was that there is no such thing as a perfectly accurate translation. You always have to make aesthetic decisions about what you want to keep, what you want to convey. Um, if you alter, for example, if you translate um, a, a common idiom in one language as a different India idiom in another language, you kept the tone and I guess the, the underlying meaning, whatever that is, that, that's the magical part of it. What is that underlying meaning? If you do that, then you haven't translated it word for word, but is that a better mm. translation mm. than the word for word translation? That's not, mm. it's not always better. It's not always what the translation demands. There's also a difference between academic translations and commercial translations. So there are all of these choices involved, um, which is why that saying an active translation is always an act of betrayal is so true. So that's just something that seems inherently magical. Um, you can't really ask for some a better magic system that has this kind of <laughs> alchemy at its roots already. So it seemed very obvious yeah. that I should make that the basis of the magic system in Babel. Mm-hmm. So one of the themes, um, at least to the extent I've had a chance to connect with it, is that there is some, that Robin is on a journey of, of sort of understanding and, and disillusionment about the initially sort of prestigious, like going to Oxford, this is a prestigious opportunity. And as his journey deepens, he becomes more and more aware of the way in which his presence there is exploitive and points to, to the deeper kind of monstrous roots uh, of of colonialism and of the British Empire. And you're playing with that in, in both very, what feel like very true historical ways and also uh, very fantastical ways. So you've, I've just appreciated the way you've blended those two. Um, but But his relationship to the act of translation seems to be widening and deepening throughout the story, throughout the story. Uh, and, and on one hand, there's this sense that translation is a betrayal, but there's another quote, um, where, where someone speaks to like listening to the other and trying to see past your own biases to, to truly glimpse what they're trying to say. And, and in that sense, there's, there's a kind of act of magic. So it, there seems to be a kind of tension or ambivalence throughout the book about the, both the beauty and the threat or the, or the dangers of translation is that does that ring true for you and, and how are you how are you holding that tension um i i guess that's part of it it doesn't seem like a real tension to me though it seems more like a truism um because obviously 
translation is magical and that it can bring people together and bridge worlds and cultures and allow communication in all sorts of contexts where otherwise we would have no access to the thoughts and words and creative works of another. So it, it's just so obvious that translation is magical. Um, and, mm. and the flip side mm. is sometimes you can get it wrong and it's, it's not a perfectly neutral tool. So either you can translate things in a way that is beautiful and traitorous, or you can translate in a way that is um, pedantic and boring and kills the beauty of original. And that's not a binary either. There are millions of ways to translate things. So um, yeah, I guess that's not a tension that I find very troubling because of course, um, like like all great tools, translation can be used badly or well, and it just depends on how hard you thought about it and how deliberate you are in in your approach to truly listening to what the source text is trying to say and what you're trying to do with it in the target to mm. in the target language. Maybe you could say more about um, how you relate to the practice of truly listening to what the original speaker or writer might have been trying to say. Because I sense that the reason I'm really curious about this, and I appreciate you kind of naming like, hey, this is just it. A tool is a tool and it can be used well or uh, or maliciously or even with good intent, but nevertheless result in, in a harmful outcome. But there's something like the more you, if I were imagining myself in a translator's role, the more I become aware of how in the way that Robin described, there's so much here. There's not only the the word for word translation, but there's the kind of literary critic aspect and the other elements. There's a big responsibility there if you choose to to fully embrace it, and um, that feels uh, feels really tender and feels really to me. It feels really tender and feels really important to say like, okay, if I'm going to do this as well as it can be done, I am going to have to make some artistic choices and what will it ask of me the translator to truly listen for for those choices so i wonder if you could speak to that to the extent that that provokes interest in you yeah i actually i wonder if i can read an excerpt from the very end of the book um because i I thought about this a lot in constructing this paragraph um and Mm. it it Mm. happens at a very crucial scene but for the sake of spoilers um I just will not explain the action going on around it. Okay. Okay. Um, Great. That's awesome. All right. But what struck him most just then was the beauty. The bars were singing, shaking, trying, he thought, to express some unutterable truth about themselves, which is that translation was impossible, that the realm of pure meaning they captured and manifested would and could not ever be known, that the enterprise of this tower had been impossible from inception. For how could there be an endemic language? The thought now made him laugh. There is no innate, perfectly comprehensible language. There is no candidate, not English, not French, that could bully and absorb enough to become one. Language was just difference, a thousand different ways of seeing, of moving through the world. No, a thousand worlds within one. And translation, a necessary endeavor, however futile, to move between them. He went back to his first, sorry, <laughs> I've realized there's actually a good paragraph later on, so I'm going to keep going for a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. He went back to his first morning in Oxford, climbing a sunny hill with Remy, picnic basket in hand, elderflower cordial, warm brioche, sharp cheese, a chocolate tart for dessert, 
The air that day smelled like a promise. All of Oxford shone like an illumination, and he was falling in love. It's so odd, Robin said. Back then, they'd already passed the point of honesty. They spoke to one another unfiltered, unafraid of the consequences. It's like I've known you forever. Me too, said Remy. And that makes no sense, said Robin, drunk already, though there was no alcohol in the cordial. Because I've known you for less than a day, and yet. I think, said Remy, it's because when I speak, you listen. Because you're fascinating, said Robin. Because you're a good translator. Remy leaned back on his elbows. That's just what translation is, I think. That's all speaking is. Listening to the other and trying to see past their own biases to glimpse what they're trying to say. Showing yourself to the world and hoping someone else understands. So that's the end of the excerpt. And I guess that's my roundabout way of answering your question about mm. how I think about mm. listening to the original. Um, and in the process of writing this book, I realized that translating between languages is no more than an extension of interpersonal communication. We are, regardless of how many languages we know, we are all constantly translating ourselves to the world, putting our thoughts into words and nonverbal language and trying to convey to others our wants and needs and desires and fantasies and fears and um I think it's it's really sad and frightening when we can't communicate effectively or be understood and everyone's doing it all the time and some for some people self-translation is easier than for others but being a good translator and being a good communicator means just really listening to the other person and figuring out what it is they're trying to say without imposing your preconceived notion of their message. Mm. Yeah, that was a beautiful passage and a and it didn't feel roundabout. It felt really clear uh, that you're you anchored me in the reminder that what you and I are doing right now, ostensibly speaking the same language, is nevertheless an act of of translation. We are attempting using some shared tools, some shared sounds, to find a way to connect and to understand. And anyone who's listening to that is doing the same thing. There's something fundamental about the choice we can make to slow down and hear as opposed to maybe simply listening for our turn to speak. And I, I think what I'm sitting with now as I, as, I, as I sort of zoom out maybe into what we might think of as our reality as opposed to the reality of, of the book are all the ways in which uh, it seems to me we have lots of people who think they understand what other people are saying, but are not actually willing to engage in the kind of listening that you just spoke to. And I wonder, um, I wonder, I wonder how we could like, I wonder how we could hold that more, more consciously as a society. I wonder if you have thoughts about that as someone who spent a lot of time with these questions of translation, with the limitations of language, with the kind of deep, deep systemic problems of our society. I'm not saying listening, if, I'm not saying if we could all listen in the way you've just presenced in these paragraphs, everything would suddenly get better. But I sense that if we, if more of us had access to that more consistently, if we were at least willing to make more of that effort, things would shift in some way. And I wonder how you relate to that. Um. Two things are coming to mind here, and let me see if I can spin my thoughts in an articulate way. Um, 
the first thing that your question reminded me of is this novel I read in the past semester by a Hong Kong writer named Wang Birin, Wang Bik Wan. And well, it's not really a mo- novel. It's like a collection of essays, some nonfiction, some vaguely fantastical, and it's called Postcolonial Records or Ho Jiminzhi. And sadly, I don't believe that there's an English translation, but what what this text is trying to grapple with is the lived reality of post-coloniality in marginalized places like the Balkans, like Hong Kong, um, places that didn't have a dominant role in the Cold War, but were spun into its orbit and um, affected in sometimes very violent ways. Um, And one recurring theme that comes up across the essays is the cultural dominance of English and how English is the language of power, the language of consecration and publishing. She has this conversation with her friend and her friend asks her, why don't you write a novel in English? You might do better. You might get more royalties, reach a wider audience. And this really troubles her because this has been the move of a lot of post-colonial novelists to operate within the the language of power to move closer to the cultural center. And in one of the later essays, as she's reflecting on the worldwide dominance of English and how people are acquiring it in order to be heard, she's thinking of how people are constantly speaking and asserting themselves and asserting themselves until it's just this cacophony of assertion and people talking over each other. And she's she's trying to think ethically about how she to comport herself in a post-colonial world and represent it as as a journalist um, because she's a journalist in her day job and as a novelist and she settles on the fact that she doesn't have to speak in English she doesn't have to yell very loudly her ethical obligation in that moment is just to listen and to travel around and hear what people are saying and I hope I've done justice to describing this text. I really loved it. That really stuck with mm. me mm. Um, because mm. I think as creatives, we we are so, as novelists in particular, we're constantly thinking about what's our message? What am I trying to say? How am I spinning my words together? What legacy will I leave on the world? Um, but that's only half of creating a good story the other half is what are you indeed trying to say about the world and where's that coming from and who have you listened to and whose voices are you representing so I hope that was articulate that was the first thing that came to mind the second thing that came to mind is a lot of conversations that have been swirling around on Twitter and other social media sites in the wake of the Dobbs ruling which is just occupying all my thoughts right now Mm. in which Mm. the first reaction a lot of people um and very often white women had to to this willingness to express all their grief and anger and hurt and frustration um in in very doomsday terms and you had a lot of people tweeting things like you can always come stay at my couch if you need to travel out of state for abortions or I will mail pills to you, et cetera. And they were really, and this was a form of, I think, you know, there's nothing ethically malicious about this. It was people reacting out of grief and trying to do what they thought was right. Um, 
but they ended up screaming over the voices of people who have been working in reproductive justice for a long time, who have well-established networks on the ground that can help people have safe access to abortions, who were asking people, here's where you need to donate, here's what you can do with your time, like here's where you can volunteer, here are effective avenues of resistance and that just got lost in the swarm of very irresponsible, mm. Um, mm. like, I'm new to the movement. Um, here's what I want to do. Um, and I I don't want to interpret these this outcry as being self-aggrandizing and attention-seeking, but a bit of it did feel performative. And if everyone had just taken the time to do their research and listening to the people and the activists who are, have already been in this space and developed expertise and were telling people what the, the needs on the ground were, I think it, Twitter would have been a less frustrating place to be on over the past week. Mm. Mm. Setting aside a part of me that wants to speak about how frustrating Twitter always is to be on, um, I really appreciate both of those perspectives on the question I offered, and they seem deeply connected. Could you could you state the name of the author from your first point one more time for, for myself and the listeners? Sure, Huang Binyun, or Wang Bikwan. I will also mm. email this to you afterwards, so you can put it in the Yeah, that would be data. great. Love to include that in the show notes, too. Her choice to... Like listen, listening as an ethical choice. I hear you then kind of working with that in this current moment that we're in here in the States with the Dobbs ruling and the ways in which even, even if we grant someone the best of intentions and we say, okay, they're not being performative, they're not being self-aggrandizing, or at least they're not consciously trying to do that. Nevertheless, the noise of the, the cacophony of assertion is actually damaging or muting or diluting or suppressing the voices around these choices who might in fact be the most impactful or the most useful or the most, uh, I don't know, I don't know if useful is the right word, but the most meaningful in the conversation that we're all trying to engage in. Is that, am, I, am I hearing you right? Is that, is that sort of what you're playing with right now? Yes, that's not what Babel is about explicitly, but it's just something I think about all the time as someone who is on Twitter far too much, but also as someone who does have a pretty large social media platform and is always wondering what are my ethical obligations here when when stuff goes on in the world? Am I obligated to offer an opinion on everything? And I think no. Um, you... There's this weird expectation in at once you've reached a certain level of or a certain follower account where every time something bad happens, you have to log on and mm. make a statement like, I condemn mm. this, or um, everyone should have equal access to abortion, etc. Um, and I understand where that impulse is coming from. We want our celebrities, especially, but anybody who's loud in public to to be these moral leaders. Um, but I was actually having a good conversation with Kamu about this and I was asking him, um, you know, how do you handle it when people come to you expecting you to be an authority on everything? 
He gave me a very good piece of advice was that before he weighs in on any social issue, he asks himself, what am I contributing that other people haven't already contributed? Like, what is the unique value of my voice in this conversation? And very often my voice doesn't need to be in the conversation. What I should be doing instead is spreading messages from people who do need the, their, their words amplified. So I end up doing a lot of retweeting or donation mm. drives mm. or um, like infographics, redirecting people to the folks who have actual authority on the matter and would like to be heard. Um, but I am just generally disturbed by the way Twitter becomes a big performance sphere every time something like, like the Dobbs ruling happens. And it's this race to show who is most outraged and who is the most ethical and who has the best like hot takes on the matter. And <laughs> it, it's just not very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, wise soul that he is. Uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing that perspective. And I don't, a part of me is like sort of trying to find a bridge back to the novel, um, but I don't want to force that. But I, but I am sitting with a question, something like, given, given the way that so much of our, our quote unquote public commons has, um, has sort of devolved or I don't know, we could probably spend the rest of our conversation exploring where the, what the heck Twitter is, is a expression of, right? Like we could probably in the same way, your book traces some really troubling lines in academia and anchors that in a really rich and compelling and dark story and hard story in some ways. Uh, you know, we could look at Twitter and go like, well, where did Twitter come from and what does it represent? But I I don't want to do that. (laughs) I just want to name that. (laughs) I am curious, though, there's something distinctly different about writing in Twitter or retweeting in Twitter or in any sort of small form, large audience space and and the work of a essayist or a novelist or a poet who is writing in isolation um, and aside from perhaps a very small trusted cadre of other people not getting immediate instant reaction, but rather like going deeply, deeply, deeply into what it is you feel called to explore that you have expertise in and then offering that out to the world for other people essentially to, to engage in an act of translation with, to, to read and, and apply in their own life. And that just, they're just such two such different modalities, uh, uh, ways in which we can interact through written form. And it seems to me that, that what you're doing with this novel is attempting as any novelist is doing in a way to go very deeply into a space as opposed to just superficially uh, addressing an issue or a theme and writing a few words about it. And I, maybe you could just speak to the, to the, those two modes and what it is for you as a, both a public figure and also a private artist to hold both of those uh, modes in your work and your profession. This is actually not a very big tension for me, um, in part because I am now at what I think is a very healthy place in my relationship with social media. And um, I I don't feel the need for constant validation or likes and attention from the internet. I like 
being on Twitter and Instagram as a way to communicate with readers. It's 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 not a space where I'm creating. Um, it's a space where I am being informative about where I'm going to be and where they can get signed books and what books are coming out and when, etc. Um, and it's also a space where occasionally I meet very cool people and that turns mm. into fun in real life relationships. Um, but because I don't think of Twitter as the space where I need to build my brand, develop a reputation, constantly be heard all the time, um, I am completely unbothered, right, if I do something and it gets no likes or if people mm. aren't reacting to things I'm saying there because that's not my venue of self-expression. That's not where I'm putting out the things that I want to stick with the world. It's it's really just a messaging device with thousands of people. Um, and I didn't mm. always feel this way about Twitter, right? I think social media and creative careers have intertwined really inseparably to the point where it's really, really hard to launch new books if you don't have a platform online and, and if people haven't already heard of you. So when I was an early career writer, I... I was addicted to social media and I was checking my notifications all the time. And it mattered to me a lot what my follower count was and what people were saying about mm. me and how mm. I was being perceived on the internet. And this is so unhealthy. And I finally gotten out of that. I was in that space for a few months, I think. Finally, I realized it was really interfering with the creative process because it's just so distracting and it takes up so much time. And it produces absolutely nothing. So yeah. now I am in a very good place in my relationship with my career where I take pleasure from the craft itself. And it's it's the joy of creation and analysis um, that, that sustains me and not external reception, like how well the book is selling, how is it being reviewed, etc. Um, and this is also a privileged perspective to speak from because I can say that because I am not really worried about whether my publisher will buy my next book anymore. And I'm not worried that I will get paid for my work so I can just focus on the work itself. So it's not an attitude I'm saying every single writer should magically adopt overnight, but it is where I'm at now. And being in that quiet space of just having myself and the words on the page and the research going behind it and the texts I'm reading around my own text, that's my happy place. Um, and it's mm. just so far mm. from the chaos of, and, and the noise of the internet that um, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I appreciate you honoring kind of the, the sort of point in your career that gives you some privilege to naturally allow yourself less pressure on the likes and the, the looks and the impressions. And I hear you, hear you articulating a sort of approach or philosophy of engaging with these tools that is much more anchored in your autonomy and your, uh, your needs and, and hopes and your vision for how you want to live your life that is really beautiful. Like the, what you just spoke to, I hope that anyone who feels a uh, relation, sort of a tense relationship with social media, feels a sense of like needing that hit or needing that affirmation, you know, with a lot of compassion for why they might need it to sort of 
It's just a, that would be a, a much more beautiful way for more of us to be using the platform as a way of connection and sharing and listening, as opposed to a way for getting some of our, um, our needs for affirmation and connection met in ways that are ultimately pretty unhealthy and damaging. I agree with you a lot about friendships on Twitter as well. And I, I think all the time that I'm glad that I use Twitter as a space to find interesting people with whom I'd like to have conversations with offline rather than a space to have those conversations because it's just so not conducive to nuance or going deep into anything interesting because on Twitter, if you want to talk at all, it's like having a private conversation on a stage in front of thousands of people and anybody can <laughs> button at any point. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. There's a way in which the sort of tw- the person's Twitter profile and their activity on Twitter be- becomes a bit of a breadcrumb trail to say like, oh, like there's a, there's a this person might be outside of this this little universe of noise and uh, kind of shallow discourse. This person is saying something or sharing something that that sparks to me a sense of depth or possibility that I w- might want to know more about uh, outside of this public sphere. Is that right? Yeah, that's why I haven't gotten off social media. Um, a lot of authors I know over the years have just been like, that's it, that's enough. Um, Twitter is more harmful than it is good. I'm out of here. And I respect and understand that. But there's just the benefits of discovery on Twitter are still enough for me to stay there. Mm. 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 Well, thanks for sharing that. And, and uh, I hope that those benefits continue to persist and that you can can not only stay anchored in that healthier relationship, but also help other people do the same as, as you share content that's true and useful and deep as opposed to performative or reactionary or some of the other things that can come up. Um, I want to shift gears a bit and, um, and really circle back to the novel. Uh, And one of the themes I'm, I'm understanding in the novel is, and, and by the way, you're someone who, who has, on, you know, like from a distance, someone will look at your academic credentials, people who care about those things like academic credentials could also have a similar kind of response of like, wow, like, if only I had, you know, my master's in philosophy and my master's in science, and only if I was getting my PhD, then, then I, you know, then I would be accomplished, right? Like there's a way in which academia can also produce an analogous, uh, uh, need meeting that actually isn't doesn't serve the purpose that we want it to, and and you explore really deeply in this book the kind of dark roots of the most prestigious, you know, one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world, and in an alternative fantasy setting, but one that's not so far from our real one, which is Oxford, and you know you're studying at Yale now, and you so you're sort of you're really in the space that you're also writing about in this novel. And you're working with some of these questions of the validity of this space and the limits of academia. And I wonder if you could speak more to that and um, in whatever way that's alive for you right now. Yeah. Let me try to pick that question apart a little because there's a lot going on there. Um, first as to the exclusiveness and prestigiousness of these places, I think the, Maybe the most important thing I learned from my time at Oxford and Cambridge, and I guess now Yale, is that 
um, being at these places doesn't make you smarter or more interesting or worthy of respect than um, than anyone else. Um, it's a it's a joke that you'll never meet dumber people than the people you meet at Harvard. But truly, <laughs> like there, people get such superiority complexes about oh, I have an mm. Oxford degree. Mm. Um, I'm above you. I shouldn't. I don't need to speak with you. And I think when I was younger, this really would have intimidated me, um, and I would have felt like I. I mean, that's be... kind of the dynamic that's happening in the scene you read earlier, right? In a sense, yeah. With Robin and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I would have felt like I didn't have the right to be in the same room with them or to take up space in the same conversation. And I think having met some of the people that are accepted to these institutions and realizing how much of a role money and connections plays a part in things and also just the privilege of having private tutors and chess prep experts and admissions counselors from a very young age. I mean, these, this is just not a merit-based system. And I have met some astonishingly dumb people at Oxford and Cambridge. <laughs> I've also met some brilliant kind incredible people um but you can find them anywhere right and it Mm. has been really good i think both for my personal growth and how i comport myself and others but also um my my confidence and willingness to take up space in rooms and conversations to realize that elite institutions are no more than the continuation of other elite institutions and the IVs and Oxbridge um, are a function of the societies that they they exist in and in which they perpetuate. So mm. that's been that's mm. really good to realize. That is not something I would have yeah. thought when I was in college and completely cowed by everyone who had Harvard degree. Um, mm. Mm. I forgot the other part of the question. Well, you've sort of pointed towards it, I think, in what you just said, the ways in which that these institutions um, are both emerged from and are, uh, and these are my words, consciously and implicitly or unconsciously designed to, and back to your words, to perpetuate the system that they emerged from. And my sense is that you're, you're really using the novel as a place, I mean, there's lots of themes in there, but one of the themes I'm in touch with is Robin's own emerging awareness of those uh, of those deep imperial colonial violent i mean what's the subtitle of the book right like uh you know it's it's got this the the an arcane history the necessity of violence an arcane history of the oxford's translators revolution and so there's something deeply violent uh embedded in the roots of these prestigious institutions and and they perpetuate that violence and now i'm using my own words again here but i would love to hear you play with that what was what was important for you to create a world that explored the um, shadow side or the origins of these institutions? As I was brainstorming Babel, I came across a book called Evenly and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities by a scholar mm. named Craig Stephen Wilder. And while it's not about Oxbridge, it's about the early universities of of the United States, so Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, William and Mary. 
places like that. Um, and it, it's really eye-opening. It, so the central argument is that these universities were not only created with slave money, founded by slave owners, um, dependent on the slave economy for many of their early years, but were in fact built in order to perpetuate the racist ideas that sustained slave societies and also settler colonialism. Um, we don't talk about it now, but many of these early programs had um, institutes where they would take in native students and teach them to speak English and basically trying to convert mm. them into white mm. adjacent missionaries to go back and quote unquote civilize their people. And it's not just an unfortunate um, spot in the history of these places. This was literally the reason for their creation um, to keep teaching the kind of histories, anthropologies, philosophies that justified um, a, a slave nation and then later a nation that um, is still wildly anti-Black and settler colonialist. So mm. taking that approach to then researching the history of places like Oxford and Cambridge, I mean, they're, they're not the same, but there are very deep parallels and you'll find all this literature about the colonial roots of Oxford and um, how it produced all these people that then went and did terrible things in India. And, and Oxford still produces the people who become leaders of the country and um, do terrible things. And, and we all have a really unhealthy relationship with these places. I, I saw someone comment earlier, the reason why people don't immediately um, like, cast folks like Josh Hawley as idiots is because they have like Harvard and Yale degrees. And it's like those names automatically make people respect them more when they're despicable. And this is true of all sorts of British public officials with Oxford degrees. And even if we think that they're the most evil men alive, we still think that, oh, but they must be really smart or they must have been really hardworking or in some way deserving because they have degrees from these institutions. But that's completely backwards. And in fact, these institutions were created to breed men particularly is exactly like them. So hmm. I, I think I'm getting a little heated about this. Yeah, I can feel the heat and I Just, welcome it. Uh, I, I really recommend Craig Stephen Wilder's book to anyone who's interested in the history of the Ivies. But there's yeah, just this collective... Ebony and Ivy, is that's the name of the, yeah. the title? Is that right? And there's mm -hmm. this collective obsession with elite universities and the kind of people who graduate from them. And it's completely unfounded and deeply harmful. Mm. 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 So I'm... I'm uh, I'm sitting with another tension, which for you, uh, a number of my tensions, you're like, yeah, that's not a big deal for me. So maybe this will be one of those too. But, but there's a sort of, um, I don't know if paradox might be too strong a word, but there's a certain complexity in that you're, and maybe this has been part of your academic journey, but you know, you're someone who has achieved quite a lot inside of the inside of the context of these institutions. And you're also someone who, who has uh, awakened to the, the deep, violent, racialized problems of these institutions. And, and uh, you've, you know, your book 
works with that really beautifully and powerfully and, and intensely. And um, yeah, I just, I wonder, I wonder how you live with that complexity because it, I, I also sense that, that your journey academically has allowed you to enter your happy place at times and allowed, allowed you to do the kind of work and research and learning um, that's meaningful for you. So so I just wonder how you're holding that, if that feels like attention to you, how you hold that and work with that as you, as you both kind of interrogate the systems and, and benefit from the systems. It is a massive contradiction, but not one that bothers me because I just make sure to always keep it in the back of my mind. Um, mm. There, mm. We all know there's so much about how the the elevation of the IVs is really bad for um, higher education at large. At the same time, from, from my individual perspective, as somebody who is trying to study with the best and get funding for it, I, I get funding to spend a whole summer in Italy studying classical Chinese, right? And it's not just for frou-frou, like let's take a vacation in Italy um, on Yale's money. It's also if I want to go look at archives at the Library of Congress or the National Archives in Maryland, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to pay for it. I know I can get funding to do that. I can, I can have access to all sorts of texts I need. We have an incredible library. If, if there's something that we somehow don't have, then Yale has the connections to put me in touch with librarians who can pull scans of that for me. So it's a really wonderful place to be a student. Um, and I, of course, I'm going to take advantage of, of those resources while I can. Um, but what I want to keep with me after I graduate and hopefully enter academia is to, is to not forget what my ethical obligations are and not perpetuate systems of, of inequality. Mm. And so the, the dominant example that comes to mind is how tenured tenured faculty will will throw adjuncts and junior faculty under the bus and not advocate on mm. their behalves or organize on mm. their behalves. Mm. And that's not the kind of faculty member that I want to be when I knock on wood, hopefully get a job in academia. Mm. Mm. I wonder if this uh, metaphor resonates with you. There's a, um, a ecological activist and Buddhist teacher. Her name's Joanna Macy and she talks about the work of building the new inside the shell of the old. And I, I just hear that in what you're saying. Like there's a way in which these systems have, are deeply problematic. And there's also a way in which these are the systems we have right now, the systems of education. And if someone like you wants to do the beautiful research that allows you to educate others and deepen our understanding of parts of our history that have been repressed or marginalized, well, this, this, the platform that's been created is a one that lets you do that. And in the process, if you become a part of that faculty system, your commitment to showing up in a new and different way feels like a part of that work of building the new inside of the old. And I wonder if that resonates with you. I think so. That does seem like a nice way to describe it. Hmm. Hmm. We're coming down our home stretch here and I'd love to, uh, get one more reading from the book, but maybe before we do that, I, I wonder if you have a sense, perhaps it's too soon to ask this question, or perhaps you've already been deep into it because I know the, the journey from completing a book to its publication takes some time, but I wonder 
if you have a sense of what's next for you as a writer, as an educator, as a, someone who has this real deep ethical commitment to using your education and, and your artistry as a form of kind of interrogating history and interrogating our, our actual reality. I wonder, do you have a sense of what's next for you as an artist and a creator? What are you working on now? Oh, well, the funny thing about being a novelist is that by the time you're interviewing somebody about a forthcoming work, it's already been a year since they turned it in. Yeah. So yeah. creatively, we're always on the next thing. Um, and I am about halfway through drafting my next project, which will hopefully come out in 2024. Um, and the set of problems I'm working on there are very different from what I've done before. So far, I've written stuff in my academic field. So I think about, I, I work on and write about history and colonialism and language and translation. But this next book is about logic paradoxes and problems of rational choice and reincarnation and the soul. And none of these are things I study, but they're things that my fiance studies. He does philosophy. So it's been really fun learning from him and getting reading recommendations and taking a peek into what he's constantly troubling with. Um, I that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun. I'm interested in how difficult it is to make rational decisions and how you can make choices that seem prima facie extremely rational, but accumulated over time put you in suboptimal outcomes and that's where all the paradoxes mm. come in mm. i'm mm. also interested in notions of the soul and hell and mind-body duality um i'm reading the phaedo right now and i'm not a person who just quotes plato and socrates casually um, so the only reason why i can quote the phaedo now is because <laughs> i've just been looking at it um but i find the phaedo really interesting because it's so it's plato's account of conversations between before socrates's death and socrates is asked why he's not afraid of drinking the poison that will soon kill him and socrates makes mm. this argument that well for the philosopher um your life of doing philosophy just is preparation for death. And he mm. offers this theory of the, of the soul being the, the thing that has the faculties for discovering truth and reason and, um, and study. And the body, on the other hand, is just this distracting vessel that is the source of all sin and desires and the things that uh, only obstruct the quest for knowledge. So... For Socrates, death is the freeing of the soul from the annoying body um, to let you escape, I guess, to this wonderful realm of pure ideas. And this is a view that's very attractive on the face of it. But the more you think about it, the, the more terrible things this justifies. And I think yeah. a lot of problems in academia in particular come down to this idealization of the this account in the Phaedo of the mind being all um, that matters and embodiment being this unfortunate, distracting detail of ourselves because it ignores the ways in which people are embodied differently and discriminations based on those embodiments. It ignores things like chronic illness, which 
my fiance and I have been dealing with over the past year. So I've been thinking a ton in which um, the Academy is ableist. And I forgot the question. I'm just really excited about uh, reading the Phaedo and um, working with, I guess, the friction between rational thought and abstract philosophy and the disconnect between that and how we live our everyday lives. Oh, the question is what is next? That's what's next. <laughs> that was a beautiful answer to what's next. And I wish we, uh, maybe we can, when the time is right, have a whole conversation about the um, seductive but ultimately destructive separation, the dualism that emerges in that philosophy, uh, oh, that death is nothing to fear because it lets me get rid of this this body when really our bodies are us. And yeah, that's, that's very, that's a very important line for me. And I'm really excited to see how that shows up in your next work. It's beautiful. Tons of fun to think about at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my, if it feels right for you to close that, maybe we could just as a last word, pull one more excerpt for you to read. Okay. Um, this is a bit of a change in tone, but one thing that I guess we haven't talked about, but which I was really excited to do with Babel is establish a sense of place and writing about London is fun. Writing about Oxford is fun, but I am very proud of this one paragraph. Um, and it's early on in the book where Robin encounters London for the first time. Mm. London was Beautiful. drab and gray, was exploding in color, was a raucous din, bursting with life, was eerily quiet, haunted by ghosts and graveyards. As that Countess of Harcourt sailed inland down the River Thames into the dockyards at the beating heart of the capital, Robin saw immediately that London was, like Canton, a city of contradictions and multitude, as was any city that acted as a mouth to the world. But unlike Canton, London had a mechanical heartbeat. Silver hummed through the city. It glimmered from the wheels of cabs and carriages and from horses' hooves. Shown from buildings under windows and over doorways, lay buried under the streets and up in the ticking arms of clock towers, was displayed in shop fronts whose signs proudly boasted the magical application of their breads, boots, and bottles. The lifeblood of London carried a sharp tinny timber, wholly unlike the rickety clacking bamboo that underwrote Canton. It was artificial, metallic, the sound of a knife screeching across a sharpening steel. It was a monstrous industrial labyrinth of William Blake's cool works of many wheels I view wheel without wheel, with cogs tyrannic, moving by compulsion, each other. So I hope that, if anything, gives listeners mm. a sense of what to expect from Babel. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, the, it speaks to the power of language to evoke place and setting. And yeah, that was a really great way to end. Thank you for that, Rebecca. And thanks for uh, saying yes to this invitation to talk with someone you've never talked to before about your work and your journey and, and your point of view on this complexity that we're all in uh, as a species right now. This was really fun and meaningful for me. Thanks for having me. I had tons of fun as well. Mm. Yeah, for folks who will include it all in the show notes, um, but for just for folks in the moment who are listening, who might want to go learn more or buy the book or your other works, where should they head to? So you can find me um, at rfquam.com. I, have a newsletter which I only use to 
remind people of upcoming releases or events of or special editions and signed books, etc. So no spam from me. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Rebecca. Thanks everyone for listening in. This was a real treat and I can't wait for folks to hear it. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serqua at Sump Pump Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love on the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.